Principal Matters Podcast, episode 222. Hi, friends. This is Will Parker, host of Principal Matters, the school leaders podcast. Each week, I bring you inspiring, innovative, and imaginative ideas for your own school leadership. This week, we're talking about fighter pilots lessons for leaders with my special guest, Colonel Brad Rutman. Colonel Brad Rutman is a 21-year veteran of the U.S. Air Force and currently serves as the operations group commander for the 138th Fighter Wing. He has commanded at the tactical, operational, and strategic levels and is a graduate of Air War College. As an F-16 fighter pilot, Colonel Rutman has five combat tours and over 100 combat sorties in Iraq and Afghanistan. He is the recipient of several military awards to include two meritorious service medals, four combat air medals, the Aerial Achievement Medal, and the Iraq and Afghanistan Campaign Medals. He resides in Owasso, Oklahoma, with his wife, Stephanie, and their five children, J.J., Christian, Coleman, Savannah, and Dawson, all Five of his children attend Owasso Public Schools. Brad Rutman is also a close personal friend. And in our leadership journeys, his being way more exciting as an F-16 fighter pilot, we talk often about how leadership influences everything. And so, Brad Rutman, I'm so excited that you agreed to share lessons with principals. Welcome to Principal Matters Podcast. And I always start off by asking my guests to share something that might surprise listeners to know about you other than what I read in your bio. Oh, something surprising, huh? Well, I guess that uh, the, the, maybe the, the secret that I have is that I, I live in Oklahoma, uh, you know, which is a Midwestern state and, you know, we get, it gets cold here uh, a lot, but mostly we get to pretty hot summers and pretty temperate winters. Uh, but I love ice hockey. And I didn't grow up in the North. I am not from Canada or Minnesota or anything like that. But uh, for some reason in Oklahoma, I became a huge ice hockey fan. And I still play at the recreational level uh, at the local rink here in, in Tulsa. Um, but ice hockey is one of my favorite sports in a, in a state full of football and basketball and baseball. I love ice hockey. That is such a cool thing, Brad. And you are one of the most active people I know, you know serving as an officer, leading a huge family. I know because you're active in our community, I see you all the time and you hunt because there's, if people could see the video of this conversation, they would see this big deer right behind you because it's, <laughs> you love to hunt. And and then you have time for ice hockey. How, when do you sleep? I don't even know when you have the opportunity to sleep, but what a, what a great story. Um, you, because I've known you for a long time, I, I'm having this conversation with both a friend and a leader, but I want to unpack this conversation for education leaders, because so many times on principal matters, we talk about the lessons of leadership and how they apply in the work that we do as schools. And I can still remember when I went from assistant principal, Brad, in my um, last school to high school principal, I actually took some time over the summer to read some, some business leadership books, including one by Jim Collins on good to great, uh, one by Dave Ramsey called Entree Leadership, just to get some sense of organizational and business ideas that could apply to the work that I'm doing within school. And as you and I have sat over the year for years, we've known each other. And as we've talked about our shared experiences, yours being obviously 
uh, focused on military experience and mine being focused on school leadership, you've you've shared with me some of the things that you actually carry around. In fact, we were having dinner together once when you pulled out your phone and you showed me a list of leadership ideas that you carry around when you're thinking about steps for leading a new command. And, and so you were so generous to agree to let me pick your brain in public. And so I just want to jump in first of all, well, before I even do that, take just a minute and unpack for Principal Matters listeners a little bit more of your story. I've read your bio of all your awards, but I but you you didn't start off as a fighter pilot. Give us a little bit of a background of what led you into this career choice. Yes, that, that is true. I uh, So I went to college and um, I've always been kind of a, a long view, long-term thinker kind of person. So um, I was always good at, at math and, and science and physics and stuff like that. So uh, I thought if I got into engineering that whenever I graduated, it was going to get me a good job. And so uh, the plan was to be an engineering major the whole time. I was able to stick with it. Uh, and get my degree in engineering, not really thinking about whether or not I was going to enjoy it. All I really was worried about was being able to have a job whenever I graduated. So I got got my degree in environmental engineering, which was under kind of the civil engineering department. And uh, when I'm looking for jobs my senior year, uh, really the only ones that are that are popping up are the, the ones that are working for the government at, in the de- Department of Environmental Quality or the EPA. Um, and, uh, they weren't very high paying jobs, which at the time, uh, you know, as a 22 year old person who's been living on ramen noodles for a long time, uh, getting a, a well-paying job was, was a high priority. Uh, but it just wasn't out there. Uh, looking back on it, uh, now as a 40 something year old person, I laugh at myself for, for some of the, the priorities that I had. However, I thought, you know, I've always wanted to be in the military. I always had an uh, extreme respect for the folks that wore the uniform. I always wanted to serve my country. Just didn't feel like it was uh, just part of the person that I was going to be. Because I thought, you know, military people just shot guns and crawled around in the mud, and that wasn't really for me. But uh, I did find out that the Air Force had a civil engineering squadron, so there were people in, in the environmental and civil world that could go to into the Air Force and serve and be engineers. And I thought that's perfect because I'll get paid pretty much the same as an EPA guy or a DEQ guy. I'll get to serve my country for four years and hang up my uniform in my closet and tell my grandkids about it after four years and I'll go get another job. Well, I figured out after a couple of years that I really did love the military. Like it suited me. Uh, I've always been kind of a a discipline rule following kind of kid. Uh, so the military suited me and uh, the people were great. Uh, however, I did not like being an engineer. Uh, I, as we've talked before, I am a little bit more of a day-to-day guy, not a month-to-year kind of guy. And engineers, they design and build things that take a really long time. And I was just not that patient. Uh, but I did love being in the Air Force. And I, so I decided, you know what, I'm going to stay in the Air Force and I'm going to try to become a pilot. Um, because those guys just seemed like that they loved their jobs more. Uh, they had a lot of fun going to work every day. And so I decided to pursue that. I was fortunate to, to find out um, just through memories and some people that I knew that in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I grew up, they had an Air National Guard wing, the 138th Fighter Wing that flew F-16s. And I told myself that is what I want to do. I want to go back to my hometown 
and fly jet fighters for the rest of my adult life. And fortunately, through some hard work and some fortuitous meetings and the grace of God, uh, I got the job and have been doing that ever since. So um, very grateful for it's kind of a weird roundabout path of how that happened. It's not the normal way people end up becoming fighter pilots, but it's how it happened to me. And like I said, I think there's some some grace that was involved in there. And uh, and that's kind of how I became uh, came to where I am today. Well, there, there's so many things I love about your story, Brad. And one of them is that you should, first of all, thank you for the service that you've given for so many years now to um, to our country and the sacrifices that you have um, made for your family. Because I've, I've known your family and I've seen you um, at home and in deployment and in all of the situations. Um, uh, we're just so grateful for, for men and women like you who are willing to, to give so much sacrifice so that the rest of us can enjoy these freedoms that we have. But something else I love about your story is um, you had never flown. I mean, you, 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 chose a, you chose a career path, a goal that was in some measures so far beyond reality for, for what the normal path is for people to, to pursue. And, and, and I've known you long enough, too, to know that that, that short story you just told encompasses a whole nother level of, of, of goal setting and courage and perseverance and, um, and reaching those goals. So congratulations on such a, a great career. Along the way, as you've moved from um, your young years in the Air Force and then into the position of a fighter pilot and then into positions of command as an officer, and congratulations on on your uh, on your rank as colonel, which I know is also something that you've taken a long time to earn. You've also learned a lot about leading others, and that's the the part that I'm so excited to unpack for Principal Matters listeners. And I just wanted to know if you could take a minute to just share the list of of that you keep in your pocket that that list of of, of leadership items that you have on hand when you're thinking about how to influence others when you're trying to help them accomplish their own goals, because that's what leaders do all the time. So let me just pause there and just ask you if you first could just share that list. And then maybe we can unpack a couple of those things. Cause I know you and I could talk for like five hours, but I only have you for a set amount of time, but what are the, some of those things that you keep in that running list? Well, to just to kind of set the tone um, you know, I, Going all the way back to high school, I was a little bit of a student council nerd, uh, if you will. So I've kind of always been uh, in this this weird like student council leadership type of of realm in my brain. Uh, and I had some great mentors in high school and college that kind of helped me to to think about things uh, in that respect. So, uh, a lot of these, a lot of these concepts that I use go all the way back to high school, uh, and one of the things that that I learned and that I thought was very helpful was, you know, if you're interested in leadership, you know, it, it's important when you become a leader, because um, because le- leadership starts at a very young age. I mean, it really does. Um, there's a there's a we could have a whole discussion on how a leader goes from follower to leader and then how they develop, but. Um, especially in the military, and I'm sure it happens even um, in the private sector, uh, in education, you go from follower to leader in a very short amount of time. And so what I would always try to do is whenever I would see things, I would go to a lot of conferences. I would, you know, there was a lot of professional military education that I had to go through. 
Um, but even in conversations that I had with my friends like you, something would happen or somebody would say something that I thought, man, that is great. And I need to capture it right now. And so I just keep this running list. Um, I've got a notes, a notes app in my phone. And when something happens, I see a quote, uh, I hear something in a conference, you know, I could go to a three day conference and, uh, this sounds terrible, but I, I, if I didn't write anything down or try to focus on anything, I would probably forget everything in that conference. So it was important for me to find the things that were most important, or at least that caught my eye the most and keep track of those. And so I just keep this running list of things, of, of ideas, quotes, um, steps, just things that I think are important. Uh, and I keep them in my phone. And then what I do is I'll transfer them into briefings or PowerPoint presentations uh, to share with others. And, and I have a, a, uh, a folder, if you will, I just call it pocket leadership. And I just have these PowerPoint, short PowerPoint mm -hmm. briefings on leadership that I give to a lot of my, uh, my troops and subordinate commanders and stuff like that. So I think it's very important, uh, even when you're young and, and you're not really like, um, you know, a senior leader, uh, or even have been designated as a leader in title, uh, or rank or whatever, uh, that you you capture those moments because I can remember I went to re really where it hit home is I went to a commander's development course uh, in Washington D.C. that was put on by the Air National Guard Readiness Center and I just every they would have speakers come in and every single one of them was a retired general retired colonel retired this retired that and they all had these briefings that they gave about leadership and I was a, a major at the time you know an operational level, young operational level leader. And I thought to myself, if I was one of these guys someday, I need to start capturing these things. And so that's, that's when it really started to take off for me. Um, and sure enough, here I am probably about 10 years later, you know, staring down retirement. And uh, if I'm going to take anything that I've learned and hopefully uh, pass it on to other people, keeping that running list is important. And then you know, like we've talked about as well, you've, you've done a very good job of capturing all the stuff that you've learned and putting it into to books and podcasts and such. That's probably something that I need to do. Um, but uh, that was the importance of kind of keeping a running list so that whenever my the time came for me to pass on this leadership, I had something to fall back on and not just my memory. Yeah, well, uh, that's my that's my dream, Brad, is for you to put all of this into a book at some point so that I can read it. Um, and Principal Matters <laughs> listeners, if you were looking at this list, this, this pocket list that Brad has been so generous to share with me, it's it's several pages of, of quotes and information. But Brad, I'm going to ask you just to focus first on that, your top part of, the, of there before, because we, we could literally spend hours going through so many of the quotes and takeaways that you have. But you've got a a set of, of tips that you have just on steps for new command. And so could you just read those to us? And then I would love to unpack um, one or two of those together today for leaders to think about and how they may apply it to their own work. Sure. Uh, and, and this is, uh, un, you know, unfortunately not a comprehensive list, but it's the things that I try to make the, the biggest points on. And, you know, obviously as a, as somebody that keeps track of this stuff, you, you write notes and you make bullets that you can talk to that you remember. So some of this stuff, of course, on its own might not be quite as as easy to understand, but uh, hopefully when we unpack them, they will be. So for for me, you know, a, a command is is when you pretty much get put in charge of a, a large group of people. That number is, is kind of nebulous. So um, it might sound um, strange to somebody that's not in the military. But in general, 
somebody that takes a, a command in a wing, which is pretty much a base, that's usually somewhere between 20 to 200 people. It can be that big of a difference. But these principles still will apply even from if it's 20 people all the way up to 200 people. So these the, the, the leadership steps that I'm writing down for taking a new command are number one, set boundaries and instill discipline. Number two, project empathy and right any wrongs from the previous administration. Uh, number three, build trust. Uh, number four, lead your people where they are. Number five, seek first to understand and then to be understood. And then number six, stay sharp. And there's some sub bullets to that. It says, uh, never think that you've arrived. Always try to think like your boss's boss. Beware of the Bathsheba syndrome. That could be probably its own uh, podcast in itself. And then last but definitely not least, study psychology. And for the listeners, you know that I'll post a list of these so you can read them along with this podcast. But Brad, those are those are powerful just in themselves. And so I would love for you just to park on one or two of those for a few minutes and let's talk about them. Um, are you okay going through those first two set boundaries and instill discipline? Sure. So uh, I can remember going through um, officer training school uh, way back in the 1900s. And uh, one of the, they showed a movie during officer training school uh, called 12 o'clock high. It's an old black and white movie set in World War II. I think it was about a, a bomber general uh, who kind of took command of a squadron of, um, it might've been an entire wing of bomber pilots. And at the beginning when he showed up, he was just, you know, stone-faced, stone cold, discipline only, didn't show any, um, didn't show any emotions, very stoic. Uh, and so it's really funny as, as leader, as a brand new leader, getting ready to be a second Lieutenant, uh, for whatever reason, that's the, that is, that is the mindset that they would instill in us as second lieutenants, which makes sense. Um, when you talk about the levels of leadership and, uh, for, I'm going to talk a lot about, and you, you, you probably read it in my bio, the levels of military leadership, pretty much the tactical level, the operational level and the strategic level. Uh, and if you want to equate that to, um, to education, you know, the tactical level would be the teachers. You know, those are the ones that are in the trenches, boots on the ground, doing the hard work, teaching kids uh, and grading papers. And then at the operational level, you have the assistant principal and the principal who are running, you know, the school have, you know, uh, a large number of teachers working for them. Uh, and so they're running the operational level leadership. And then you have the strategic level leadership, which is probably the superintendent and, uh, and, the, and the school board. So uh, when I talk about those levels, you can equate them probably to those three in the education department. So as a tactical level leader, um, it was very important. And they instilled in us to set boundaries and instill discipline. And you can still do that at the strategic level as well, especially if you feel like that the train is going in the wrong direction. But I, I do believe it's very important to be very straightforward with what your expectations, what your boundaries are, and what is okay and what is not okay. There is an outstanding video that Brene Brown put out about boundaries. Um, and I'm going to get probably a lot of the words wrong and the quotes wrong, but it's so much easier to set those boundaries at the beginning of anything, whether it's a relationship with a person or you're commanding uh, a squadron or leading a school um, to set your expectations and to let your subordinates know what is okay and what is not okay to the max extent possible. It's so much more helpful. Um, because if you just show up and you're like, you guys just do your job and I'll, you know, help you out whenever I can, 
as soon as they cross a boundary that you you thought that they knew about, but you didn't tell them about, then you have a lot of work to do to try to clean up. So setting boundaries and instilling discipline is very, very important at the beginning um, so that you can, number one, make sure that everybody knows what is okay and what is not okay. And number two, it just sets the tone for for how you are going to command or how you're going to lead whatever group that you're a part of. Um, and we could talk a lot more about that because um, there's so many different um, second and third order effects of doing that correctly and doing it not correctly. But in general, it's very important. And I encourage anybody to go out and find that Brene Brown video that talks about boundaries. Uh, it is, I mean, it is a life-changing video. It will help you in your marriage. It'll help you leading your kids. Um, and, uh, and so I think it's very important to do that as your first step of taking, taking any leadership role. Well, what I love about that, Brad, is, and this is something that when I'm working with new or aspiring principals, we talk about this a lot too, which is that um, it's just like you said, it's easier to set the expectations on the front end than to be constantly correcting people midway through because you didn't tell them what to do on the front end. And so I often talk to leaders about, you know, creating key responsibility areas with their staff, with their teachers, helping define what those expectations are on the front. And it, it's the same thing in a great classroom. Your wife was a, was a fantastic teacher before she decided to step out of teaching, but, um, but she was a fantastic teacher because she understood both the balance of strong classroom protocols first so that she had the freedom to build relationships and accomplish those goals together. And so when you think about instilling that kind of discipline, um, that's just, that's a powerful uh, takeaway. Um, let's, let's take a, let's take a quick look at that second area that you talked about for just a moment, which is, you know, projecting empathy and writing wrongs, because I feel like those go hand in hand. You, you know, when you set boundaries, you instill discipline, then you have the, in some ways, you, you have the order necessary so that you can also build those important and powerful trusting relationships. Yes. So th those probably those next three steps, project empathy, build trust and lead your people where they are. Those, those are all probably kind of lumped together because once you kind of stand up in front of everybody and kind of set the boundaries instill discipline, let people know that you are the one in charge and that you are going to make sure that everybody, you know, follows the rules, um, that knows the difference between right and wrong, that knows the expectations. And you, you put that stake in the ground. And then after that, you find ways to make sure that you understand, um, uh, what their needs are, uh, what it is that their what their challenges are, the things that they struggled with. If you are taking over an organization that has been burned by the previous leader, um, you know, what we do in the military all the time when a new commander uh, takes command, we try to uh, do what's called a climate survey. So we'll send out a survey to all of the subordinates in that command and say, you know, just asking questions about various things. And then that will be uh, a good indication to the new commander what the climate of the of the new command is. And so if you're reading in your climate survey results that, you know, somebody is just really upset with, you know, my, the last guy wouldn't let us take any leave. Um, or I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm, I can't think of anything in particular off the top of my head all of a sudden, but if you can find the wrongs that are in that climate survey, you need to find a way to write them. And, and you need to be careful because, you know, writing a wrong does not mean giving people exactly what they want or what they need, but, you can find ways to avoid making those same mistakes twice if that was a big deal for the people in front of you. So projecting empathy, righting any wrongs is very important at the very 
first part of taking a command or taking a, a leadership role. Because if you do that, then you will build trust. And, and, that's, and that is like of vital importance. If you, you know, one of my favorite leaders was Colin Powell. And uh, I, there's a video out there of him, a reporter asking, what is the most important thing in leadership? And without even missing a beat, I, I think the reporter didn't even finish the question. And he said, trust. Trust is the most important thing. Because if you trust your subordinates to do their job, it will make things a whole lot easier. And if you look down in the, in the books that I'll recommend, the speed of trust is one of them. Um, and then if you trust your subordinates, then you won't micromanage them. And then if your subordinates trust you, that, that you're going to have their back, that you are going to um, be able to provide resources that they need, uh, that you don't have ulterior motives for the things that you do, then they're going to want to work for you. So, so building trust is, is huge. I could, I could probably do a whole podcast on trust as well. And then probably, you know, probably those two, if I was to pack those two together, projecting empathy, writing any wrongs and build trust, those probably go, go together. Um, and then leading people where they are and the next two probably go together. So I'll, I'll stop there. Well, I just want to pause for a second and just remind Principal Matters listeners that um, because because I know you're applying these lessons to your school leadership. And Brad, what's so powerful is that so many of the things that you're saying match the work that we're that we're doing um, in school leadership, I, identifying the, the condition of your culture, creating a system where people trust you so that they will follow you because that's not going to happen otherwise. Um, and all of that within the context of, of creating the right boundaries and, and expectations so that people know where they're going. And you've had, you've had years of experiences, Brad, where you have, in your leadership, um, just like all of us, done things uh, where you've seen success. You've also done things where you may have failed and then learned from that failure. But, but I, I wanted to park here for a little bit and just ask you to unpack a story or two. If you had to think back to some of those areas, whether that's setting appropriate boundaries or trying to build trust. Um, could you share a story in your own leadership journey where you've had to apply uh, either of those and in, in what you learned from that? Sure. So I was, so I grew up in, in at the 138th fighter wing as one each fighter pilot. I was, I was a fighter pilot, went out there and flew every other day um, did all the responsibilities of a fighter pilot, learned to be the best, you know, one each, um, weapon in the, the arsenal of the United States Air Force that I could possibly be. And then after you go through a bunch of your upgrades, it's kind of time now that once you're an instructor pilot and you've, you've got all of that learning behind you, it's time for you now to have some other additional duty, some other job in the squadron so that you're not just flying every day, which was a great time. Uh, I really missed that. Uh, but so my first kind of job in the squadron was to be the squadron scheduler. Um, so I was in charge of making sure that um, all of the airspace was scheduled, took all the pilot bodies and put them into flights for the best training, uh, assigned the instructor pilots to the, to the upgradees to make sure that all of that happened. And in addition to, to making the schedule, I was also uh, the liaison between the fighter squadron uh, and the, main the maintenance group uh, the folks that actually provided us the jets. Uh, and that is a really, uh, a new thing for a fighter pilot, because as we grow up in the fighter squadron, we're told to, you know, make the decisions and stand by what you're going to do and be the guy in charge and, and just not take any crap from anyone, you know, that kind of attitude, uh, which is very important, uh, when you're trying to train guys to go to war. 
Um, but then you get shoved into this job where all of a sudden you have to actually like work with people and people that are not fighter pilots and that have their own agendas and um, have their own concerns. And so working directly with maintenance was a huge, um, it was new. It was just a very new uh, concept for someone who's been taught to like not take a no for an answer uh, for the last six years. So whenever I was, whenever I became a scheduler, I was working for a guy who was very, um, he's just very aggressive in how he wanted to fly. He wanted to fly as many airplanes as he possibly could, uh, as many times a day as he possibly could so that we could fly as many hours as we could and get great training. And in theory, it sounds great when you're a fighter pilot, but when you're a maintainer and you actually have to take care of these jets that we're going out and abusing every day, it's a terrible idea. So there was a lot of friction there and it was very difficult to be the scheduler to try to project all of these desires of my boss to the maintainers who were like, you are breaking all of our jets. Um, we can't fly them. We have nothing left. This is terrible. Um, this is a terrible way of doing business. So for about two years, I did that job and it was really hard. Um, and for, you know, just because of the way my parents raised me, I was very good at, um, relationships. I was just very good at being a liaison between two people. Uh, and so I did a, a fairly good job, but it was very difficult. And as the scheduler, I am pretty much two people below the guy that was telling us to fly, fly, fly. The guy below him, the fighter squadron commander, he would jump in every once in a while. And, and he's a great guy, but to his credit, he was getting, you know, his chest poked by the boss and he would call the, the guy that was in charge of all those jets was the production supervisor. And he would call him directly. You know, the fighter squadron commander is the lieutenant colonel. So he's probably the same rank as a principal of a school. And he's calling a guy who's a senior master sergeant, you know, probably the, the rank below of a teacher and telling him how it's going to be. And that production supervisor has a boss of his own that he has to answer to. So anyway, the relationship part of it was just all messed up. I mean, it was just it was just a really tough time because. The guy that was making the, the strategic decisions was pushing everybody to their limits and everybody was was hurting pretty bad. So fast forward uh, after that job, um, they needed somebody to go over to maintenance and be the aircraft maintenance squadron commander. Uh, the maintenance group, which is, you know, mechanics, weapons loaders, uh, people that work on engines, on the avionics. Um, they have one spot over there in the maintenance group that is for a pilot to go over there and be a commander just to be um, just as kind of a career broadening job, if you will. And it just so played out that I ended up applying for that job and I got it. So now all of a sudden I went from being the scheduler, the guy that works with the production supervisor and our relationship was good, but it was very difficult. So all of a sudden I'm his boss and I can tell you the maintainers did not like that. Um, they thought that I was a spy, that I was going to come in and pretty much take away their voice and, you know, bow to the whims of the operations group commander. And it was it was bad. In other words, they did not trust me at all. Um, so it was very important for me in that job to let all of my subordinates know I had 180 of them. I was the squadron commander of 180 maintainers. And what I could have done is jump in there right away and say, this is how it's going to be uh, as far as um, the, uh, the strategic vision of the squadron went. Obviously, when I stepped in and, and did my set boundaries and instill discipline um, 
mentality that wasn't that didn't have anything to do with how many jets we were going to produce and how often we were going to fly. That was just more of a behavior thing. So when I stepped in, I realized that I could I could jump in right away and say, this is how it's going to be. We're going to fly as many jets as we possibly can. But I knew that that was not a good idea. So I spent that whole first year of my command, an entire year, essentially keeping my mouth shut and just building relationships. That was the most important thing for me. I had to build relationships with the production supervisors, with the, the chief master sergeants in my squadron, because those are the guys that really are the ones that have their finger on the pulse. Uh, the, the, the chief master sergeant that was in charge of my squadron, building a relationship with him and making sure that was good. I spent a whole year trying to build trust uh, and it paid off because by the end of my command, uh, at the end of four and a half years, all of those folks are lifelong friends and uh, they worked really hard for me. And, um, and uh, we did it, we, we had a good, productive four years. Um, and there were times when I asked them to do more than they thought that they could do. But because I had taken the time, the year to, to really build relationships with them, they trusted me and they said, okay, I believe that you're asking me to do this because you actually do care about me, not because you care about some agenda. So that's right. I, I think that that story right there is probably uh, the most important part uh, or, or a good example of Coming in, not knowing, you know, really the 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 group itself, just beside, just beside, just be beside a few surface relationships, and really taking the time, because that those guys were going to be able to do their job, um, even if I wasn't, you know, uh, completely always in their business trying to tell them what to do. They they could do it without wow. me doing that. So I had the the um, the luxury of being able to build relationships in that first year. That's kind of my trust building example. Well, Colonel Rutman, what I love about that story is um, so many things. And principal managers, listeners, I know I know you're doing the same thing I am. You're applying this to your work experience because think about the stresses that you're going under right now, even maintaining protocols for COVID or trying to instruct students. And you have both strategic pressure from your district level or whatever the strategic levels are above you. And then you have that tactical approach that needs the the people on the ground doing the work. And you know that as a school leader, you're getting pressure from both sides of that. And how do you manage those? You manage those by building trust, by remembering that it's not just accomplishing the mission that's important, but it's also taking care of the people so that you can accomplish the mission. And so there's so many powerful things there, Brad. Thank you for, for unpacking that. I, I want to wrap up this conversation uh, because I would love to have you back for a second round here, but I, I just want to wrap up this conversation by um, asking you to um, not necessarily unpack the lessons, but could you just list the books that you um, refer to in your own leadership journey as something that maybe Principal Matters listeners can focus on if they're looking for some good reads for enhancing their own leadership capacity? Sure. I, you know, there are, you know, hundreds of books out there on leadership um, and so many good ones. Uh, and so I've read a lot of them and, um, I, I kind of have my top four only because I, I truly do use these like on a daily basis. Um, and so that, you know, there are great books out there that have great stories. Um, and, and some of them, uh, are very tactical level, uh, as, as now, as I'm sitting in a strategic level position, uh, the ones that I, I kind of recommend here are a little bit more strategic level, uh, but they, they do have operational tactical um, applications as well. And, and I would love to, to sit here and tell you why on all of them. But uh, the, the top four that I, that I have are number one is emotional intelligence 2.0. Uh, 
uh, I think that if, if you read that book and you understand why, uh, why you react the way that you do um, physically, like how your brain works um, and how, uh, how people work, you know, one of my things at the very end there was study psychology and, and knowing what emotional intelligence is and how to apply it. Just not only does it make you a better worker, but it makes you a better leader as well. Uh, and, and I could talk for hours on why that is, but the main one is, is that, you know, in any field, you have people that are tactically awesome at their job. So you may have, I may have a fighter pilot who goes out there and can do everything really well and win all of the contests and be really good at employing weapons. Um, but as soon as you, you know, question him on something, uh, he gets real defensive and, uh, gets argumentative and gets angry and he's not going to ever be anything better than a really good fighter pilot because he doesn't have the emotional intelligence to deal with everything else that goes along with it. So learning emotional intelligence is very important. The four lenses. I, I will say that that's not my favorite book on personalities. Um, my favorite one is actually the spirit controlled temperament, but you know, you, you say spirit controlled to people and they kind of turn it off if they don't, you know, if they don't subscribe to Christianity or God or anything, but the four lenses is still pretty good. So if you are able to understand people uh, based on their, their lens or their personality, it just helps you lead, lead them better. And if you're just a tactical level person, it helps you to exist better with them as a coworker. Uh, if you can understand why they act the way they do, well, they act the way they do because there's some personality traits that they were just born with. Um, that, that is the reason why they are who they are. And so I think that makes, not only does it make you a better leader, if you can understand people, uh, it can also make you a better coworker as well. Uh, and then what got you here won't get you there. This book, wow, this book is such a great book for people that don't understand why they didn't get the principal job or why, you know, there I've been teaching for 15 years and I know everything about teaching. Why didn't I get the principal job? Well, because what got you to be the best teacher, the teacher of the year or whatever is really not what makes a great leader. Uh, and that sounds crazy to hear me say that. But like I said, I, I have my career has been filled with people who are outstanding fighter pilots, outstanding tactical people at their job. But they don't make the best leaders because they don't know how they just don't know how to work with people. Um, and if you if you go out and get that book, there's actually a comic book that the uh, the author has made uh, that I think is free. I'm not really sure, but it's just uh, it's a great if for somebody, if you have somebody that is like, why am I not the guy that just got this awesome job? I've been working for 20 years and I don't understand why I didn't get the job as the next principal or as the next person. And it's like, go read this book and it will tell you why. Um, it's called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Yeah, there it is. And I want to say, it, you might have to look for it, but there's like a comic book version of it, like a cartoon version of it that's great. Um, it's a very short read, but uh, I have recommended that to many fighter pilots who just don't understand why they're not the guy in charge because they're the best pilot. Well, just because you're the best pilot doesn't mean you're the best leader. So, uh, and then the last one, the speed of trust. Uh, so this book was written by uh, Stephen Covey's son. So if you're a, a seven habits of highly effective people uh, reader, uh, this one was, was written by his son, I believe. And it's just a great, there's a lot of like really, um, details oriented like explanations of this book but really when you break it down it just shows how organizations run better when everybody trusts each other and how important it is to build trust 
because if I ask somebody to do something and they trust me, they're going to go do it without thinking twice about it. But if they don't trust me, they're going to hesitate. They may, you know, do things that to intentionally make it go slow or even to subvert you if they don't trust you. And it just talks about how that just the many ways that in an organization, trust makes everything go faster. It just makes everything work better and everything go faster if the, everybody in the organization trusts each other. And I have, I have foot stomped that. Um, foot stomp is a military word, meaning like I'm really emphasizing that. So I, I really emphasize trust in this whole kind of podcast. And it just, for any organization, for any leader, trust is just paramount. And you have to find ways to build it, fix it, and make sure that everybody does it. So, Wow. Well, Colonel Brad Rutman, thank you so much for taking some time to unpack some of these leadership lessons for Principal Matters listeners. I have had the honor and the privilege to call you friend for a long time and also the privilege to sit and have some, we were having a meal together just recently, just the two of us. And I was thinking how rich it would be to share these kinds of conversations beyond our circle. And, 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 and so I, I just am so grateful that you've taken time over this holiday break to just connect with me and let me have this conversation with you. And Principal Matters listeners, I just want to encourage you to take a look at the blog post that will accompany this podcast at my website at williamdparker.com. So you can see the complete list of Colonel Rutman's pocket list of, of other leadership tips. And Brad, I would love to have you back for a follow-up to just unpack a few more of those areas and to maybe do some speed rounds on some of the quotes that you live by as well. Um, any parting thoughts as we say goodbye to Principal Matters listeners? Absolutely. would love to come back and uh, finish the second half of the list. I, I think that most of the, the success you will find in a leader um, as being a leadership requires a lot of introspection. It just does. You have to sit back and think about how uh, your behavior affects other people, how your decisions affect other people, even as a, as a worker, even at, at the tactical level. The, the sooner that you can be introspective about yourself, the better you're going to be as a leader and a follower. Uh, and I tell people that. And then, like I have said, uh, you know, many times in this broadcast, just trust, building trust between you and everybody you possibly can uh, just makes everything work a lot better. Self-reflection introspection and building trust well principal matters listeners i hope you have enjoyed this conversation as much as i have thank you colonel robin for those golden nuggets and principal matters listeners thanks for doing what matters and we'll talk to you again soon if you'd like other free resources like this one you can check out all my posts at williamdparker.com <laughs>